G'day folks and welcome, I'm Chris Labor and you're listening to Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. Today on the show it's our introductory episode, so you'll get to know what the show is all about, what you can expect and a bit about your hosts. Speaking of hosts, I'm here with TJ Steppen, author of Answers to Giant Questions and Bible nerd extraordinaire. G'day Tim. G'day Chris, thanks for hosting the show with me. This is going to be a lot of fun. I thought that today we might start off easy with a bit of a chat about movies, in particular prequel films. We're going to see how that will get us started on the right foot for our Bible study in future episodes. Also, I've got a cool question about Samson and Delilah that I want to hit on in our Q&A session coming up later in today's show. But before we get into that, a little housekeeping. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. And a great book it is. I can certainly testify to that. So we're basically asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that will help. But a full review is better and really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast uh, wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. Yeah, in the future we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you found the content in Answers to Giant Questions to be helpful and or useful. Also, I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback uh, about the show or the book, um, that you'd like to tell me or the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com, where you can get the blog, your feedback, connect through the socials, ask questions, and get answers. Send me an email at giantanswers@outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I'll try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. Excellent. Sounds good. And of course, this podcast comes out every week. But you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, please do that now and you'll get notified when each episode drops. Speaking of episodes, let's get this very first one underway. It's time for you to get answers to giant questions. All right. Well, it's uh, time to get to know your hosts. And uh, I suppose uh, since I wrote the book, I'll probably start with myself and uh, just tell you a little bit about where I'm from. I... I'm a Christian now since uh, about 1992. So I would have been 13 years old at that time, thereabouts. And uh, gone through uh, a rough patch as a young kid, turned to faith in Christ. I'd I'd always been sort of dragged along to church and didn't necessarily want to go. But, you know, uh, as a kid, you go where your parents take you. And, uh, yeah, I guess the the Word of God is more powerful than than I thought because it kind of started to soak in and I came to faith because after all these years of faithful input from the, uh, the pastor at the, uh, the Baptist church where, uh, where I've been going, uh, it finally clicked and I realized that I, I needed Jesus Christ, that I, I was a wretched sinner and uh, I needed help. I've got to be honest, like a lot of people say, well, that, that must have been when you, your whole life transformed and turned around and it'd be nice to say that but the truth is it didn't really take hold of me too much until later after i left the baptist church i went to a pentecostal church and that's where i got baptized (laughs) i was 18 at the time and uh 
that's a church where I met Chris actually. Yeah, that, that was a long time ago. We we go back a long way. Yeah, I went to a whole bunch of different churches around the place uh, for a number of years. Yeah, searching for some deeper truth and some application of that. I guess everybody goes through a journey of sort of finding their place within the body of Christ. So, uh, yeah, it took me a while to find my feet, I suppose. Uh, I went to some Bible colleges and, and applied myself there. And the aim wasn't necessarily to get a, a plaque on the wall. It was more about satisfying a, a hunger for the Word of God. Yeah, I've just uh, carried on uh, serving in churches, uh, working here and there, trying to live out my faith, uh, trying to apply uh, what I can in my, my day-to-day life. Along the way, I've met a whole bunch of cool people and done some great things. And uh, one thing I'm particularly proud of is my work with Grave Forsaken. They're a uh, evangelical uh, Christian heavy metal band. Uh, their new album uh, called Footsteps of God. That's worth uh, a listen. And um, yeah, Grave Forsaken were uh, instrumental in uh, helping me to sort of find a voice and and that really helped me to uh, to think about pursuing bigger goals in ministry than, than just uh, you know doing my own life. Uh, I've been studying the Bible a long time, but I got on this tangent, I suppose, that I've been on for a very long time now. When I started asking questions about the Nephilim, which is of course what prompted the book, that was yeah, an interesting experience. I was asked one day to preached to a congregation that I was attending at the time. I was going to talk about Noah and how he was obedient to uh, God's call to action. And talking about Noah and, and about his obedience and his righteousness, it occurred to me that there had to be a better explanation for why nobody else made it on the ark. And I thought, well, surely God doesn't just destroy people because they were sinners. There needs to be a better explanation than just saying, oh, well, they were too bad and they couldn't be saved. And, you know, I thought about, well, what about other people who've done horrible things, you know? I mean, are they beyond redemption? And that's what really sort of tugged at my heart about this. There are people out there who believe they are too far gone to be saved uh, for a whole bunch of different reasons. I thought, well, this needs to be tackled because there are people who are taking that belief to their graves. Uh, so this matters to me. It's It's serious. Well, that's really enjoyable and fun to talk about. Uh, There's some real heavy uh, implications behind this, which is what motivated me to to keep going. And yeah, since I'd uh, made a a major uh, error uh, that day, uh, talking to that congregation and talking about how people were just, you know, sinful reprobates that couldn't be saved, you, you know, that's what I'd grown up with. Uh, I thought, no, I need to set this right. And that's when the wheels started turning that some, yeah, almost 15 years later resulted in the uh, production of the book. And then I thought, well, you know, the, uh, the, bu- the book's out. You know, I've sort of done that and I can just tick that off. And then I thought, well, no, there's a, there's a wider audience out there that needs to find out about it. You know, it's particularly hard for uh, someone such as myself. I mean, this is my first book. To get it out there and to get that, message more widely known i thought well i I need to push this and so that's what the podcast is is here for that all happens outside of my my real life i'm a married man i've got a beautiful wife we've been married uh, 17 years and we've got three kids together you know they're all sort of primary school age and their life and growth and development uh 
sort of takes center stage most of the time. Uh, and, and I'd work full time as well. So yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much my story. And uh, I'll hand you over to Chris now because he's got a fascinating story of his own. Well, thank you, Tim. I don't know if fascinating is the, uh, the right word to use, but, but uh, <laughs> I think it's fascinating how each of us comes to know Christ. And that's really uh, the most important story, I guess, that all of us have to tell. And um, so my story is somewhat similar to Tim's. We're only a few years apart age-wise, so I grew up also in Western Australia. I uh, became a Christian when I was 19, um, started preaching when I was 20, which now that I think about it, I had no right to do. <laughs> uh, but uh, there was a small church who were very supportive and, and uh, forgiving. Um, and um, yeah, very busy with that church. So the church that I met Tim at, that Tim alluded to earlier. In fact, I think the first time I met Tim, you were... You had long hair and you were sitting in a tree at a church picnic, I, I seem to recall. Sounds about right. thought, who's this guy sitting in a tree? I want to know him more. So, yeah, we've, we've been friends for a long, long time. And uh, when I discovered that he wrote this book, I was very excited. It's just amazing, the transformation that God has done in his life. And, and similarly, God has certainly transformed mine. Um, and what you were saying, Tim, about the Word of God really resonates with me as well. Just that... that that hunger for the Word of God has always been there. And no matter how many sermons or studies or books or whatever I read, that hunger never really went away. And so it just really forced me, particularly the last five, six years, to delve deep into the Word of God and to discover its truths and its depths, really, upon, from my own, in my own way. Um, and it's been a tremendous journey that will continue until I die, I guess. Um, so, yes, yeah, very busy with church stuff. Um, recently, about a year and a half ago, I, I left the church that I was in uh, for about 20 years, which wasn't an easy decision to make, to be a part of a, a house church, which is basically just a church that meets in a house. Uh, there's about 15 of us, and it's just a different way of doing church, um, a very, I guess, spirit-led way. Um, and yeah, it's uh, really, again, just reignited my faith and my passion for God. It's been a tremendous journey for me and the people that I'm journeying with. It's been awesome. Outside of church stuff, um, much like Tim, I've written a book, uh, Beautiful Nonsense, which is a collection of uh, great book, short stories. Thank you, Tim. So um, and I've had some incredibly minor success in doing that kind of stuff, I guess. I've been always been writing and creating, much like Tim, with his music. So I've written stuff for the stage. Uh, I did a, a podcast called Extra Sequential many years ago. So I'm a big comic book geek. So, um, and I'll certainly do my best to bring some of my geeky pop culture knowledge to this wonderful show. Not married, no kids, um, had, uh, had cancer when I was 28, so that was a few years ago now, and God really brought me through that, which again is a testament of His grace. And I'm just excited to see what God is going to do with the both of us and through this ministry. And I'm so excited that um, I get to see Tim's wisdom and knowledge just vomit forth. In, in an amazing and entertaining way. I'm so thankful to be a part of the show. Yeah, well, it's going to be a great show. Uh, so make sure you stick around and uh, subscribe because we've got a lot coming up. And uh, just to give you a bit of an idea of what to expect, uh, I did put out a survey on the website, giantanswers.com, and just asked people what they wanted in the show. And got a wide range of responses. So we're going to try and sort of twist it all in there and work in something for everyone. In particular, we're going to be addressing the ancient worldview 
of the biblical writers because really that is how you get at the essence of biblical truth. Mm. It's by understanding what they meant when they wrote those words rather than what those words appear to mean to us when we read a translation today. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's a big part of it. And of course, Q&A. I mean, how can you write answers to giant questions and have a podcast without answering people's questions? So that's going to be an essential part of the show as well. Uh, We're going to be talking about spiritual warfare, giving you some tips and tricks on how to keep your friends and family safe and how to get the Word of God out there into the world and living and active within and without uh, around your life. And uh, we'll talk about some topics related to the book, you know, get deep into some of the stuff that I just couldn't fit in that book. And despite it being almost 500 pages, uh, that it is a massive work and it's thoroughly researched, but there is just so much that I actually could not include because it was just a little bit divergent from the core of the message that I was trying to bring through. So we still have an awful lot to talk about around the book. And for that reason, I'm not going to be regurgitating the content of the book on here. I'm not going to be reading it out. I'm not going to be just rehashing that stuff. So I would encourage you, please avail yourself of a copy of the book. What we're doing here is going to be supplemental. And uh, you never know, if you ask some good questions, I might address them here and and maybe sort of canonize that, if I can say that without being uh, blasphemous, uh, in, in a future book. I'm not promising a future book, so I don't get too excited. But uh, that depends on the quality of your questions. Bring us some good material. Absolutely. Ask us some good questions, and we'll see what grows out of that. Now, uh, I did say we were going to talk about prequels. Yes. And uh, I love a good prequel. I guess the first exposure that I had to prequels before prequels became a big fad in the film industry uh, was back in the days when... Uh, I used to go to uh, the local uh, fair, what what they call the Royal Show here. Uh, The Royal Show is like an agricultural uh, show. You know, they have animals and whatnot on display and farm equipment and stuff, and it turned into a massive commercial enterprise. And, you know, there's rides and show bags and and all that kind of stuff that kids like. And and, uh, we'd always get a show bag, and you'd, you'd bring your show bag home, and one of the first things I'd pull out would be a phantom comic. I don't know if any of you read The Phantom. It's been around mm-hmm. over 80 years. One of my favourites. I suppose I feel a bit nostalgic if I ever uh, lay hands on a phantom comic these days because it sort of connects me back to childhood. But back in the day, they used to have a little uh, intro spiel uh, just in the front there of the, uh, the phantom comic. And it always started with the same line. It say, for those who came in late. And then you got a little rundown just kind of over the course of a page of the history of the Phantom and, you know, how he became the Phantom and, and uh, you know, all about his, his horse and, uh, and his, his main squeeze, Diana, and, and all the stuff that sort of went into making the Phantom who he was. So that you were then primed to start reading the episode you held in your hands and you sort of had a sense that you were kind of set up for what was coming next. And it gave you that that feeling of familiarity, like you know the main character, you know sort of what you're in for. And yeah, it just sets you up to really enjoy the, the comic. So that was sort of, yeah, the first 
thing I came across that was anything like a prequel. Nowadays, of course, there's prequels for everything. There's all kinds of prequels out there. I heard about one earlier this year that I, I wasn't particularly interested in, but uh, it came to my attention that there was a prequel made for uh, the original film uh, Snow White and the Huntsman. And uh, it was called The Huntsman Winter's War. Now, I didn't go and see it. Uh, I didn't go and see it because I was like, who wants to see that? <laughs> I, I Honestly, I was like, I didn't think that the, the Huntsman was really that engaging in that first film. I, I did see Snow White and the Huntsman, and honestly, it wasn't that memorable. And I was like, what really inspired anyone to think that we needed that backstory? So I was kind of puzzled. It, it didn't make sense to me to invest in that character i guess that was like something that made me think well this is a bad example of a prequel certainly not the worst i'm sure you know it's probably quite watchable again i haven't seen it sorry if that's your favorite movie and i've just dumped on it but um yeah honestly i yeah i wasn't really inspired to catch that one i i've been certainly exposed to some bad prequels in the past and i, I think everyone's probably got a best and worst you'd, you'd have a few uh worthy mentions I do. My worst. I, I was going to say uh, Alien versus Predator, you know, because I, I was an Alien fan and a Predator fan. So I thought, well, you know, two good things, right? Put them together. It's, it's got to be great. Yeah, it was not great. Um, but I think it's just pipped at the post by Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Okay, yes, that was predictable. I'm sorry. And I know that there's been a lot of support rallying around that film in recent years because everyone said, hey, look, you know, you've been too hard on them. You know, you've, you've been looking at them through the lens of the original trilogy. And But yeah, I do have a bone to pick with episode one. And it uh, really just comes down to one word, midichlorians. Oh, I thought you were going to say two words, Jar Jar. Oh, I can live with Jar Jar because, you know, people used to say that C-3PO and R2-D2 were annoying and inane. True. And, you know, you grow to love them because when you're a kid and you watch it, it's great, you know. Yeah, I can I can overlook Jar Jar just <laughs> because I have children. Um, but, yeah, midichlorians really yeah. rip, rip the guts out of the whole Star Wars mythos, in my opinion. Agreed. Uh, so it's going to be hard for me to uh, forgive George Lucas for that one. <laughs> but, yeah, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Uh, what do you reckon you're worth? Um, yeah, so it's been an interesting discussion, actually, over the last couple of weeks about this. Uh, Dumb and Dumber, I think it's called When Harry Met Lloyd, that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. uh, probably at the top of my list would be X-Men Origins Wolverine. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, Wolverine as a character has been a, around longer than us, you know. We'll still be around long after we're gone, but... <laughs> True that. The, the, the appeal, much like Boba Fett in the Star Wars comic, the appeal for Wolverine in the comics is the mystery. Not much has been yeah. known about him, and that's what makes him a cool character. Um, but then Marvel knew that they were going to explain Wolverine's origin in this film, so Marvel pulled the trigger and explained it first in the comics. So um, Wolverine's origin in the comics, which came out before the film, is a lot better, I must say. And similarly with Phantom Menace um, and Alien vs. Predator, there's a lot more novels and comics that are a lot better than the films. But yes, absolutely everything you said. It's hard to get a prequel 
done right. Just taking awesome characters and concepts and setting them 20 years before doesn't make a good prequel. And that's why my pick for the best prequel, and uh, again, I'm showing my hand as a massive Star Wars nerd here, but um, Rogue One, a Star Wars story. That, to me, is uh, just an awesome prequel. And that's despite some of the obvious criticisms that have been leveled against it. I mean, primarily that... uh, Nobody survives uh, the film. So, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it. Um, whoops. But, um, yeah, even, even the fact that all the heroes die doesn't kill the, the story and it doesn't diminish it because it actually, well, for one, it works imperfectly with the original story that it leads into and it does lead directly into uh, Star Wars Episode Four: New Hope. So that really helps. Obviously, having a main character that we're familiar with in Darth Vader coming in at the end there really sort of solidified that. And, you know, that's obviously the crowning moment of the film. The whole film really built on that mythos around the Star Wars series that I really loved and appreciated. And that's why I was so like, down on uh, episode one for the midichlorians thing, because I think a good prequel builds on the, the, the spirit of the original rather than diminishing it. And uh, I, I think that's what it achieved. First and foremost, like, I think that was the major achievement of the film. And uh, it really did set it up well. You didn't have glaring contradictions. Um, it did a lot to build into a familiar story. And it helps also when you watch the original trilogy to have been informed by that. Mm. So it enhances your experience of the original as well as being a a solid film in its own right. So I think that that's really important and that's why it gets my vote for best prequel. What do you think, Chris? Agreed. Yeah, Rogue One is certainly at the top of my list for all of those reasons. It was a hard prequel to make because we all know the end of (laughs) episode four. So Mm -hmm. it was a bold choice, but what a great film. I like uh, Bumblebee. Most recent Transformers film, only the first 10 minutes because it's got it's all set on Cybertron and it's all the order, the generation one Autobots that you and I grew up with in the 80s. I've watched the first 10 minutes of Bumblebee quite a few times, and similarly, the the last 10 minutes of Rogue One a few times, and also like X Men First Class. Uh, So, those two immediately spring to mind. Well, I think uh, there's some good examples where you know things like character development, building on the whole mystery and enchantment of the original really work in the favour of a prequel, you know. And what I like too about a good prequel is because you're invariably sort of condensing a lot of history into a prequel before the the original uh, gets underway, you, you don't get sort of bogged down in, in a lot of uh, narrative uh, exposition and, and that sort of thing. It's it does, in a way, assume that you already have some context, right? That you're familiar with the premise as a whole. And what it's going to do then is kind of uh, expand on that enough to draw you in. And it'll do that in an introductory sort of sense. So it takes something you know, gives it a bit of explanatory uh, background, but without getting bogged down. And you can make up a lot of time in a, in a prequel where the main body of your story, which you're already familiar with, has time to slow down and tell that story. 
So uh, the the plot, of course, has to lead into it too. You don't want to uh, have a disconnected prequel because it just doesn't function as a prequel. You know, the whole premise of uh, a prequel is it's got to lead in to the story that you know, and you want to do that with uh, little to no contradiction if you can help it. The function, I suppose, then of a prequel is to sort of get you up to speed on a show, and that's what I was talking about before with the fan comic, for example. Like when you uh, you read that opening page, that that sort of gets you uh, up to speed and, and, and brings you up to date, and uh, gets you ready for that original material that inspired the prequel in the first place. So, uh, trust me, there's a reason why we're talking about all this stuff, and it's connected to uh, where we're going with our biblical study uh, that we're going to be starting in future episodes of the podcast. So uh, if you're wondering why we're rambling about films, that's that's really what it's all about. I can't let go of this discussion of prequels without talking about one that I would like to see, uh, which, you know, I, I don't know if anything's uh, in the works or if it's ever been talked about, but a prequel that I'd like to see would be uh, around the Matrix film, you know? Um, Absolutely. I know those uh, those sequels were not well received, <laughs> um, but that original Matrix film, boy, didn't it grab the world's attention? And yes. it was just fascinating, and uh, you know it inspired so much, um, and yeah, created genres. It, it it really got people thinking. Well, hey, maybe there is another way to think about the world that we live in. That's something that really appeals to me. Like maybe the materialistic worldview that we have isn't the only lens to look through to see the world around us. Yeah, I think a, a prequel to The Matrix would be fascinating, like, because you get a bit of, uh, a, a bit of story uh, throughout the film that says, you know, that they used to have, like, a, an original version of The Matrix that was sort of too perfect and it crashed because people were not able to accept how perfect it was and they... they they reacted against it and brought it down. Uh, that'd be interesting to see. Uh, it'd be good to see how Morpheus and his crew uh, escaped, you know, and and how they learned about the prophecy of Neo and how they found him. I mean, wouldn't it be fascinating to, to see that yeah. uh, from from their point of view, you know, watching Morpheus and the gang desperately trying to get in touch with Neo, you know, right up to that moment where he responds on his keyboard, I, I just think that'd be absolutely fascinating. It'd be good, uh, a good opportunity to perhaps uh, rebuild the reputation of the franchise too. I like that. I like that idea. I was thinking of uh, Jurassic Park. Oh, yeah. Um, and I was thinking, you know, one of the reasons perhaps the last two Alien films didn't work, Prometheus and Covenant, was because they were trying to explain the creation of aliens, but they don't really have character as such. We're not, you know, but at least Jurassic Park has human characters, Dr. Hammond and Ian Malcolm and all these characters around the dinosaurs, um, which would explain, you know, perhaps the first few failed attempts or perhaps why he's so driven. Where did he get his money from? How, who did he get, the, how did he get the lab and build mm. all his friends, this, this huge infrastructure? Um, the first few failed attempts at making dinosaurs, you know, perhaps going back to his, even to his university days. I think that yeah, interesting take. I can imagine him, you know, letting loose some sort of savage creature in his, in his <laughs> yes. back shed or something, you know. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. And I also thought there's a lot of uh, prequel TV series that have been 
for uh, coming. I know uh, Sylvester Sloan has just announced an upcoming uh, Rocky prequel TV series of yeah. Rocky as a younger man and going through like the Civil War and the moon landing and all these pivotal moments of history and just his reaction. Because yeah. 50s, 60s was quite an interesting time. But just off the top of my head, Smallville, Superman prequel, Gotham, Batman prequel, Pennyworth, Alfred, Pennyworth, Batman's butler prequel, hey. uh, Bates Motel, which was uh, uh, Psycho, The Carrie Diaries, not going to watch that, Sex in the City, prequel, Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, which I never hey. watched. And even James Bond, James Bond Jr. There was a cartoon, I think, in the 90s. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> so I think we have this fascination with uh, how and where things began, especially that characters that kind of capture the zeitgeist of the, the pop culture attention at the moment. So mm. I think Hollywood's always going to give us this stuff. Yeah. And if yeah, it's done sure. well, it's good stuff to have. Yeah. Props for uh, fitting zeitgeist into a conversation. That's awesome. Not easily done. I'll try and do it every episode. (laughs) Now, all all this talk about prequels really doesn't uh, serve us much until we recognise how important they can be. Uh, And I want to talk about the most important prequel in the world. I, I propose to you that the introduction to the Bible... The first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. That's a prequel. Mm. That is setting us up with a backstory, really just one familiar character, but a couple of recurring bad guys that uh, they come in and out. And we get references back and forth throughout Scripture to uh, the first 11 chapters, which I, I'm generally going to call that the primeval history. It's kind of a bit of a nerdy term for... Uh, dealing with all that stuff that happened before the invention of writing and stuff like that. So, yeah, generally when you're reading academic material and whatnot, they'll call it the primeval history. And, uh, yeah, they're dealing with that whole section of Genesis from uh, chapter 1 through 11, sort of leading into where we pick up the story with Abraham. Yeah, all of that functions as a prequel because I know a lot of people have talked about it as a prologue. You hear people say, oh, well, it's it's the prologue to the Bible. Here's the thing, like a, a prologue is more like a sample of what you're going to get in the middle of the story. When you pick up a book and you read the prologue, you're normally getting, you know, a couple of pages of high drama that's going to come out further on in the book. You know, a, a prologue in the biblical case would be maybe, you know, a couple of chapters about Jesus or, you know, something that happened with King David or something like that. You know, that'd be, that'd be a prologue, you know, sort of a an idea of what to expect when you get into the into the book. But uh, that's an entirely different function to what the primeval history is actually doing. Uh, because what it does is, uh, just like a, uh, a good prequel, you're uh, getting a, a backstory to something you're already familiar with. You're seeing how those themes and characters get developed and it enhances your understanding of them as you go through the biblical story. I guess the other thing to point out too, the reason I can say it functions as a prequel is because the first 11 chapters of Genesis, in the form that we have it now, that came about much later than a lot of the stuff that's recorded in the Old Testament, uh, historically speaking. So that's not to say that it didn't exist. You know, I mean, uh, 
a lot of people are very fond of the idea that Moses authored the entirety of the Torah. And I'm not saying he didn't, but in the form that we have it now, it's obviously had some tweaks. And uh, I'm going to suggest that the primeval history, as we receive it now, uh, probably found its final form around the time of the Babylonian captivity, which is going to explain a lot about why there's so much Mesopotamian material and culture uh, preserved in this account. So as we go through Genesis 1 through 11, we're going to see a lot that sort of Babylonian perspective. And we're going to see, of course, the God of the Bible turning those stories to his own ends with his own message for his people. Again, I'm going to get a lot of people saying, oh, you know, the Bible isn't some sort of plagiarism of of ancient Near Eastern mythology, and I agree, it's not a it's not a plagiarism. It's it's a reaction to it. It's a it's a response to it, and it's telling its own story as well. So obviously, we're going to get into that in, in some depth in later episodes. But for now, it's something to think about. So yeah, it's worth keeping your eyes open. You go through and read the the primeval history uh, for yourself, those uh, first eleven chapters, and think. Certain things get explained in there pretty well and certain things are left uh, unexplained and ambiguous. And we're going to go in there and sort of tackle those details and yeah, get to the, the nuts and bolts of what the biblical author is really trying to express to us in those early chapters. The reason for that is because it sets you up with a really solid foundation for biblical interpretation as you go through the rest of the Bible. So when we consider that the Bible as a whole, or certainly I'm speaking of the Hebrew Bible, uh, in this case, the Old Testament, uh, this was all sort of compiled, uh, not just because people had the luxury of time and uh, what should we do, let's, let's copy out some, some old stories. Uh, there was a need to preserve the, the culture and, and uh, the faith and way of life of the Hebrew people. And, and that's really what the Babylonian captivity really instigated there was a need to get all this stuff down the primeval history serves as a means of priming the people who perhaps haven't grown up with these stories have lost a sense of identity looking for themselves wondering where is god in our situation we're stranded here in babylon we're not in our homeland yeah there was a genuine need to to bring hope to the people the primeval history is the first step in uh, cementing people in a faith that of course would build as they went over the familiar stories that they knew would set the stage of course for the expectation of the messiah which of course is jesus christ and the new testament is not ignorant of all this background and setup and runs with it that's i think the most noteworthy things when we get into the, the new testament and we see what the apostles are doing with the word of God, we recognize that they too are drawing on this primeval history and they're using it to set the stage, to build the expectation that they can then lay that as the, as the foundation for the faith that they have. And it makes sense in their worldview. Our task, of course, is to get into that worldview and understand what they meant. I'll give you an example of why this was so important, how how it uh, came to be used. If you've uh, got your Bible with you, you can have a look. I'm going to read from uh, Acts chapter 17. 
Paul's uh, speech at Mars Hill at the Areopagus, where uh, he addresses uh, some philosophers and talks to them about the God that they don't know. Paul's about to introduce them to Jesus Christ. So uh, reading from verse 22, and uh, I think I've got the, might be the NIV here, I think. Uh, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and this is given assurance to all, by raising him from the dead. So that speech from Paul there, whether you uh, originally noticed it or not, he's, uh, he's covering some of the major elements of the primeval history there. He's setting up uh, the, the expectation of the people by uh, laying out the situation that the world is in. For those that find his story familiar because of the, the culture that they're dwelling in, this, this immediately sets off questions like, yeah, why is the world the way it is? And uh, how did things come to be as they are? And how, how did we lose connection with this unknown God? And uh, that's exactly what, what Paul's uh, building on and he's going to use to address their concerns and, and to bring them to faith. Yeah, we see that the primeval history plays an important role in advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why it needs to be better understood, I think, than, than what it is today. The future of this podcast really is going to be talking about that and explaining it from the perspective of uh, an ancient Israelite, as best we can anyway. You, you can't get a perfect uh, perspective on these things, I suppose, from uh, several thousand years in the future and a different uh, culture and different language and all the rest. So those are the barriers to uh, correct biblical interpretation and that's why it takes a bit of work to get these nuggets out. You know, uh, a lot of people say, well, can't you just read the plain text? You know, that should be good enough. Well, no, it's not really. <laughs> I mean, you know, we try. Bible translators have a very hard job to do. Uh, there's, there's something like a, I don't know, about a, about a 7,000 word vocabulary in, in Hebrew uh, found in the Bible. I mean, English has got at least 10 times that many words. And probably none of those directly correlate one to one, because the the Hebrew language is uh, 
really it's it, you know it's quite beautiful and it's very dense these words have multiple meanings and the context determines what fits where and the, the grammatical structure and everything is different to what we have it's just not easy to to put down uh, in a different language uh, something uh, and, and still carry that exact same meaning uh, and it's not just translation it's, it's cultural issues and uh, concerns related to genre Kind of things, a lot of uh, reasons why it's hard to get at the truth claims of scripture as opposed to just reading words on the page and assuming that you know whatever it means to me, it must that must be the word of God. That's what we're uh, aiming to tackle in the show. Hopefully, uh, you're going to stick around and enjoy the ride, maybe learn a few things, and certainly if you have questions about anything that comes up in the show. Uh, anything you just heard us talking about, stuff that you'd like to hear addressed in a future episode, you can send us in a question. Go to the website, giantanswers.com. There's links there. You can send us an email uh, to giantanswers at outlook.com. Send me a question. I archive all your questions, and I'll go through and try and find answers for you. Make sure you value yourself for that. We want to get some feedback from you, find out what you want to know, uh, particularly as it's relevant to uh, the content of the book and the show. And uh, yeah, we'll see if we can get you some giant answers. I believe we've we've got some questions that we're gonna have a crack at now. For those of you who have sent in your questions already, and as Tim said, please keep them coming. The first question is actually about Samson. I jokingly refer to myself as a reverse Samson, as someone who goes to the gym and is also going bald. The more hair I lose, the stronger I get. But this question is from Keith, and he asks, why did Samson lose his powers when his hair was cut? Mm. Well, that's a, that's a very interesting question. Yeah, I guess one of the reasons that this question is uh, relevant to our discussion, and this will be familiar uh, to anyone who's read the book because I do talk a bit about Samson. There was some speculation on, online that uh, Samson might have been a giant. I looked into this myself when, when, when that first came to my attention, and I thought, well, no, I don't think that that's the case. But notwithstanding... <laughs> I think that the author of the book of Judges really wanted us to think about Samson as though he were. He certainly made every effort to characterize Samson as a giant. So that's kind of how this becomes relevant to uh, what we're uh, what we're doing with the with the book and, and with the show here. So yeah, I thought this would be a good question to tackle. Samson is an interesting character because he's got a, a unique kind of role in scripture. He was uh, what they call a Nazarite. That's not something that comes up a lot in scripture. You could take a what they called a Nazarite vow. Anyone could do this. It's basically a means of devoting yourself to God, especially for. Uh, a period of time and for a certain purpose. 
And so if you were, uh, if, if you took a Nazarite vow, then for a specified amount of time, uh, there were certain uh, obligations that you had to fulfill. Uh, requirements had to be kept. And, uh, and you were devoted to the service of God to do whatever God might ask you to do in that time. Uh, so that goes above and beyond your normal service as a, as a faithful uh, follower of God. So there were a number of particular requirements uh, which the scripture outlines in Numbers chapter 6, uh, where it talks about the specific requirements of the Nazarite vow. And so what these do is sort of make it obvious to other people that you have become a holy person. You have become sacred space. You have become a vessel through which God operates. And so as a Nazarite, you become, I suppose, a special representative of God above and beyond the normal everyday life that God calls us to to represent him. These requirements, uh, you've got an abstinence from uh, the fruit of the vine. So there's no... uh, drinking wine or anything like that and it even goes so far as to say well you don't even eat grapes basically just you know stay away from vineyards and try and keep yourself pure i think that's probably more to do with the impairment of judgment and that sort of thing because obviously if you're uh if you're drinking wine getting influenced by alcohol then you're not going to necessarily represent god well by using your full faculties uh, and another aspect of wine, of course, it takes a lot of human effort to cultivate grapes. And even, even if you're not talking about wine, I mean, just the fruit of the vine in general, I mean, if you're talking about grapes and whatnot, there's a lot of human effort that goes into growing grapes. It doesn't just happen. You know, yeah, grapes occur naturally, but, you know, in the ancient world, cultivation of grapes is a big deal and very labour-intensive, it still is. Grapes come to represent... Uh, human effort to provide and what God really wants to say through the through the Nazarite is I provide for you rely on me not on the works of man one of the things that sort of symbolically comes through in these requirements the Nazarite vow is that uh, the Nazarite is supposed to reflect that God is sustaining God is the agent at work through this man. Now, another requirement of the Nazarite vow is, uh, of course, not to cut the hair. And so a Nazarite has to let his hair grow through the entire period of his vow, uh, which ties back into some of the earlier uh, laws in the Torah, uh, around the, the cutting of hair and trimming of beards and that sort of thing for the uh, priests. So the idea was uh, you keep your hair growing long because uh, hair growth represents life and God, of course, is the, uh, the author of life and the sustainer of life. So growing hair for the purposes of this vow was designed to uh, represent God's life-giving power. That was important uh, in that respect as well. Uh, the other thing, and this sort of ties into a similar theme, is that a Nazarite wasn't allowed to touch any dead body. So if a person died, uh, the Nazarite 
wasn't allowed to, you know, pick up that person and take them to be buried or anything like that. Um, and it, it even goes so far as to say that it, if a Nazarite is standing there and the guy standing next to him happens to die and fall over and touch him, then he's got to start his vow all over again. Because, again, God really distinguishes himself by being the author of life and as such is separate from anything representative of death. So it's very important for the Nazarite as God's special representative or ambassador, if you like, that in all his life and conduct that he represents God well by, in particular, sort of embodying these these attributes of God and, and representing that well. That's a bit of uh, what goes into the Nazarite vow and, and why that's important. So the next question, of course, is uh, not every Nazarite is, uh, you know, super strong or anything like that. You know, that was a specific gift given to Samson. And uh, again, he wasn't a giant. How is it that having his hair cut resulted in the loss of his power? Because uh, what the what the scripture says about Samson and how his power came and went was it was the spirit of the Lord coming upon him that gave him the strength. Okay, so we often think about Samson as some huge muscle bound guy. He just kind of happened to have you know superpowers or was just like really built. There is no description of Samson's attributes physically aside from the fact that he had the long hair. Really, we, we can't actually say that his strength was a natural feature of, of uh, who he was as a person. And I'm sure that the author of Judges, uh, given that he was so keen to uh, have Samson sort of represented as one of the, uh, the, the bad guys of the Bible, you know, make him look like one of the Nephilim. Uh, if Samson had been especially muscular or anything like that, I'm sure that the author would have seized on that and, and spoken about it. But uh, there's nothing said about uh, Samson's natural strength within himself. So I think that means that really we can only attribute Samson's strength to the work of the Spirit of God in his life. And that means that his position as a Nazarite somehow has some connection to this. Again, Samson's uh, status as a Nazarite was a unique thing because he was born a, a Nazarite. He was consecrated from birth and his mother uh, somewhat prophetically uh, recalled that it would be until his death which uh, the angel of the Lord didn't say that to her but she must have understood that he, he would die uh, and as a right so that somewhat uh, sad there and a bit telling yeah the uh, the Holy Spirit was going to work through uh, Samson to achieve some particular ends and of course uh, you know the story that he, he goes on to uh, significantly diminish the uh, power of the Philistine oppression over Israel in that period, which helped pave the way, of course, for the monarchy, uh, King David, the line of the Messiah, and so on. So uh, he had a very important role to play, and that's why the Spirit of God was involved in his life, giving him the strength to do these amazing feats. We still haven't hit, though, on why that strength disappeared when he had his hair cut. Now, I mentioned before that the idea of a Nazarite is to represent certain qualities of God. Right, So he's got to uh, have a certain 
reverence for God, which which is uh, evident in the world around. In other words, in all his dealings and interactions, he's got to be uh, God's face, God's hands, God's feet on the ground. Samson failed at that repeatedly. Uh, as we go through the story of Judges, and I think this is why the author really characterizes him as a bad guy, because the Nazarite really is someone who, well, when someone voluntarily takes a Nazarite vow, I mean, they're a good person trying to do a good thing. Firstly, we're told Samson didn't get that choice. He was told, well, this is your life and this is who you have to be. And I think he kind of resented that in a way. But yeah, throughout the course of Samson's life, we see situations where he really didn't live up to the expectation of a Nazarite and he didn't represent his God very well. Initially, these things are just kind of little misgivings that were kind of secret, you know? He goes down a side alley, finds a, a lion and kills it. Well, bang, he's touched a dead body. But, you know, there's nobody around. He doesn't say anything. There's that weird episode later on where he comes back and finds honey inside the carcass of the lion. Later on, he's eating the honey, gives some to his parents, but he doesn't say where he got it from. You know, he, he's kept the whole dead lion thing quiet, right? Because he's a Nazarite. He's not supposed to have touched the dead body. He's representing God. He's supposed to be all about life and, uh, and life-giving power and, you know, shouldn't have anything to do with, with death. You know, that's, that's the first sort of hint that he's failing as a Nazarite, but he's managed to keep it under wraps. But uh, then he starts to get socially involved in other people around, you know, his little uh, foray into wine country there where uh, he starts hanging out with the young men in the town and uh, meets the uh, lady who becomes his wife. What's he doing in a vineyard? You know, he's supposed to uh, abstain from the fruit of the vine. He's supposed to keep himself uh, ritually clean and pure and obviously uh, if you're in your, if you're in a vineyard and you're a young fella surrounded by you know a, a crew of young men and women they're probably drinking if you're with them and you want to be one of the crew and you know there's a there's a lady that you fancy there and look it doesn't say that he drank uh, I'm not saying that he didn't but again th- this is a, a, a case of Samson sort of putting himself in a position where that the reputation of God is uh, at risk. It's threatened by what he's doing. Okay, and this is starting to become a bit more out in the open now. There's more people around. There's witnesses who obviously can see that he's a Nazarite because he's got the long hair and all the rest of it. And, you know, they see him frolicking in the vineyards uh, with the ladies. So something's going on. And it's not looking good. Now, certainly people who understood the whole Nazarite thing uh, would have been asking questions about Samson at this point. And that's got to make us ask the question, well, how long until God steps in and says, look, you don't represent me anymore? And that's what happens when uh, Delilah comes on the scene and... uh, She's got the Philistines uh, in her ear going, hey, tell us how we can take care of this Samson because he's causing trouble for us. And so she asks for the secret of his strength and Samson eventually gives it away. Now, Samson obviously had some idea that this was how it was going to work. So he understood the Nazarite vow and, and all his earlier dabblings with it sort of showed that he had an awareness of it too. The, like, for example, the fact that he kept the dead lion a secret tells us that he was aware that he, he shouldn't tell anybody about it. And it wasn't that touching the dead lion 
destroyed his witness. It was people knowing that he'd done that would destroy his witness. Right? Obviously, God witnesses what, what he's doing, right? But the, the purpose of the vow is to represent God to others, okay? So Samson's private uh, sins, if you like, uh, between him and God were not so much the issue uh, concerning the, the Nazarite vow. But uh, yeah, when he gets his hair cut, that's different because suddenly it's indisputable, undeniable. I'm trying to say both of those at once. Yeah, there's no question now that Samson has cast off the shackles of his Nazarite vow because he's allowed Delilah to cut his hair and it becomes evident to all and sundry that that vow is out the window now. He does, he, he's beyond caring about it, right? It's gone. And that means that the representation of God through his life is just shattered. That's the point at which God says, right, okay, we're done here. And my strength is going to leave you. And uh, Samson was consequently uh, handed over to be uh, tortured and executed. And of course, we know how the story goes. His hair started to grow again. And he got his strength back for one final act of revenge on the Philistines. Uh, which, as I said, uh, set the scene for the uh, Philistine dominance over Israel to be brought to an end. What this story really teaches us is uh, about the sanctity of God and how he expects us to be his representatives in the way that we live before other people uh, as well as privately. And it shows also when we look back on the, the biblical giants, I mean the real ones, right? When we get into the Nephilim and that sort of thing, and of course we'll be discussing that in great depth in this podcast, you know, we're going to see that the representation of God is of primary importance. Okay, so when God made man in his image, he, he made man to represent him. And that is why preserving that status as God's image bearers is so important. Preserving our, our humanity as God's intended vessel for communicating who he is that's really uh, crucial, really critical. And when we start messing about with that, when we take steps away from representing God and who we are, that's when we create distance between ourselves and God. That's when uh, sin gets a hold of us and drives a wedge between us and our Heavenly Father. And that's really something that applies to all of us, whether we're uh, super strong or, uh, or not. Great answer. Okay, we've got another question. So this is the second question for this. So TJ, you posted in your blog and on Facebook that you rule out the post-flood return of the giants through Noah's wife. Mm. What about the wife of Ham or one of the other sons of Noah and their wives? Take away. Yeah, well, I do get this question all the time, which is why I wanted to touch on it here. Even though I did write extensively about it in the book, uh, I recognize there's a lot of people who haven't picked up the book yet, and they, you know, they're looking for a quick answer. They won't go into huge detail here for that reason. As I say, you can get the book through Amazon, and paperback, and, and Kindle. Uh, I did touch on this one briefly when I spoke to Jack Ashcraft on his radio show, which is called Expedition Truth. Uh, when I did that last year with him, 
There is a link to that show up on my website, giantanswers.com. Again, the, the book is going to be a major resource on this. And, you know, other other writers and uh, speakers have touched on this as well. I'm not the only one. But, uh, yeah, to summarise very briefly, because, again, I have addressed this elsewhere, whether you prefer Noah's wife or Ham, you end up with the same outcome. I know a lot of people are saying, well, you know, could it be Noah's wife who... Uh, became the uh, the carrier of the Nephilim across the, the flood. You have other people saying, well, you know, I, I think it was probably Ham's wife. And so there's a bit of back and forth. But both of these are essentially the same question. The reason is that Ham didn't produce his son Canaan through union with his own wife. Now, he took Noah's wife. That That's what that idiom... Uh, to, to see his father's nakedness means. Now, uh, catching idioms in the Bible is difficult because, you know, we don't use them in modern culture, so it's often we don't recognize them when we see them. Maybe we need to have the uh, Idiom Preservation Society uh, re-established. I'm just uh, referencing Chris's book. A uh, little, little plug here for... Uh, Beautiful nonsense. Thank you. Much appreciated. <laughs> Chris has written a whole assortment of uh, amusing short stories that are uh, a bit oddball and a bit funny. And um, yeah, one of them, the, the, the Idiom Preservation Society, I thought, well, I'm going to hit on that because, yeah, we, we see some unusual phrases in the Bible. Um, to see your father's nakedness, yeah, basically means to uh, sleep with your father's wife. And that is explained in Scripture, in Leviticus, uh, I think it's chapters 17 through 20, there is there's a couple of verses there which you can sort of piece together which will show how we arrive at that understanding of this cultural expression which would have been you know, in common use in the day. So why would someone do that? Well, it's an attempt to usurp his father's authority. See, Noah's basically king of the world at this point. Not that they had uh, necessarily considered Noah as the king. Well, they don't present him as the king. I know a lot of ancient texts are all about kingship, uh, especially the Babylonian material. But uh, the Bible takes a low view of kingship most of the time. While they don't present Noah as a king, uh, he certainly seems to be situated as one. And certainly in the eyes of Ham, he was the crowned authority over the world. So Ham's decided that he's going to have a go at knocking Noah off the perch. It might not sound in our culture like that's any sort of reasonable way to go about becoming in charge of the world. But uh, this is just how things were done in ancient culture. We've got another example of this in scripture, which you find in the story of uh, Absalom uh, attempting to take over King David's throne. So when you read Second Samuel 16, uh, Absalom received some advice to do this, to knock off King David uh, and become the king. So the idea is basically, well, uh, you think you're the king? Well, if I can come in and I can take your wife, then uh, there's nothing that I can't take from you, including the kingdom. Uh, and especially because... The, the kingship really was held in 
the power of the king to produce an heir, right? Because you needed some continuity uh, on the throne. So it wasn't enough to sit in the seat. You had to have a son. And if you could bring forth a son as king, then that really cemented you because you were able to then show the people that this reign of yours was going to extend into the future and you would continue to hold sway over the land. So that was really the essence of kingship in those days. So it makes sense then that uh, Ham's act against Noah isn't just taking Noah out of the, the primary place as the patriarch of the family. It's about ensuring a legacy as well. He takes Noah's wife. He has a son by her who turns out to be Canaan. I mean, you wonder why the scripture repeats so many times, Ham was the father of Canaan. Like just throws that little phrase in there, kind of looks out of place. The reason for that is to show that this was an attempt at taking the kingship through securing a, a legacy, okay, by establishing an heir to that throne. And of course that backfired almost comically because uh, Noah figures out what's going on and curses Canaan. And the reason he cursed Canaan and not Ham was, well, number one, God blessed Ham. So Noah's not going to go around and, and curse him then because that would be contradicting the word of God. Uh, but secondly, since the attempt on the kingship is all about legacy, the way to uh, upend that whole enterprise is to curse that legacy. So he's put the curse on hand that he would be a servant to his brothers. And of course, who was his brothers? It's Ham's brothers, right? They're also Canaan's brothers now because they came from the same mother. That's how that story is to be read. And of course, it doesn't come across in our modern reading because we're not familiar with those cultural expressions and, and the way things were done in the ancient world. That is why, uh, whether you think it is Noah's wife or the, the offspring that come from uh, Noah's son, Ham, you still have the same problem because they came through the same woman. And uh, we find that uh, explanation wanting somewhat because uh, it wasn't until the rise of Ham's uh, grandson, Nimrod, that the, uh, the gibberim of the primeval history reappeared. I say the gibberim of the primeval history because the Hebrew term uh, gibor or gibberim is consistently rendered within the primeval history uh, in the Pentateuch as gigantes uh, or, or uh, gigas, obviously uh, singular in uh, Nimrod's case, from which we get the English uh, giant or giants. Again, there's a lot more on this in my book and you can get that online through Amazon. Uh, follow the links on my page, take you straight there from giantanswers.com. Indeed. Final and uh, slightly off topic, but nonetheless very interesting question. What is the true name of God and how do we actually say it? You know, I do get that one a lot. I know there are a lot of very, very insistent people out there, very uh, proud of their tradition that says, well, this is the, the approved way to uh, to say God's name and, you know, it's got to be done like this or you're talking about the devil. And uh, uh, I just, firstly, I want to reassure people, God knows what you mean. <laughs> and if you're talking about the God of the Bible, um, you know, God isn't going to close his ears because you didn't pronounce it quite right or you thought it had different letters in it or... You know, I mean, 
Let's not be unreasonable. But anyway, the uh, the revealed name re- represented by the four letters, the tetragrammaton, as they uh, call it in the tech books. In uh, in English, we have uh, Y H W H, or you might see Y H V H. Remember, of course, that written Hebrew didn't use vowels; they were implied by context. Other languages do this too, like Ugaritic, for example. Most Bibles will refrain from using the four letters because in some circles it's considered disrespectful to represent the divine name uh, in any form. So this is why they will often use the word Lord uh, in all caps. So when you see Lord in your Bible, capital letters, um, the original text would have had the the four letters uh, of the Tetragrammaton, the YHWH. Now, uh, some Bibles, you'll find the word Jehovah. If you've been uh, laying in bed on a Saturday morning and had your uh, sleeping disturbed by particularly zealous people in suits on your front doorstep, uh, you'll know that there are certain groups out there very zealous about the name of God as Jehovah. That word has an interesting history. It's a variant derived from taking the original Hebrew tetragrammaton the, uh, the Masoretes then, the, uh, the school of uh, Jewish scribes who uh, endeavoured to preserve the scriptures for, for many centuries. So they inserted the vowels that were assumed from the preferred Hebrew word Adonai. Adonai means Lord. Right, so they picked the vowels out of Adonai and they stick them in the middle of YHWH. Later on, uh, about the 12th century, they converted it to Latin... Later, they, they changed the Y to a J, I think, in the 16th century. Mushed it all together so that there's something you can say without writing or saying the divine name directly. So uh, Tyndale's translation of the Bible was the first to use Jehovah. And uh, you would find that, say, if you looked in Exodus 6, verse 3. Now, although the, uh, the correct pronunciation of the four letters was effectively lost during the early Second Temple period because it fell out of use... Uh, scholars have been able to reconstruct it based on grammar and syntax in, in written context, and it's generally understood today to be correctly pronounced as Yahweh. As for whether it's appropriate to say the divine name, there is no biblical foundation for objection to its use. After all, it is the Bible that preserves it more than any other word. The reluctance of uh, exilic and post-exilic Jews to use the name may have come from an interpretation of the third commandment, which is, you know, from Exodus chapter 20, verse 7 uh, in the NIV, it says, you must, uh, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. However, even Adonai fell out of favor uh, because of the Jewish tendency to sort of hedge the Torah, you know, they built laws around the laws so that you were so far away from being able to break them, you couldn't really go wrong. So laws upon laws upon laws, and, you know, first you couldn't say Yahweh, then you couldn't say Adonai. Uh, The Orthodox Jews today will say Hashem, which means the name uh, to refer to God, and that sort of insulates them by a couple of layers from accidentally breaking this law, right? So, uh, you know, they take that seriously and, you know, I, I think we need to uh, respect people who do make these choices from conscience. You know, uh, it, it's a serious matter for people's faith and, and their own connection with God. And we shouldn't uh, abuse our own 
uh, freedom, you know, to put down others who are walking according to their conscience. There is a lot more to the correct application of the third commandment, which I'll cover in a future episode. But uh, if anyone's looking for a good read on that specific topic regarding the third commandment, uh, I want to recommend a book by Dr. Carmen Joy Iams, which is entitled Bearing God's Name While Sinai Still Matters. That's a uh, 2019 release from IVP Academic. Thoroughly recommend it. As for the divine name, as far as scripture is concerned, yeah, there's no reason not to use Yahweh respectfully. And it's not necessarily wrong to use the other names I've mentioned or not use them. Okay? Thank you, Tim, for another uh, fabulous answer. And thank you for all those who have submitted questions. That's all the time we have for right now. Please subscribe and catch you next time. All right. Well, uh, a few quick acknowledgements before we wrap up the show. We're grateful for the support of many people behind the scenes. Uh, I want to thank my wife Liz for her encouragement and prayers. Thanks to my church family at Warmbrook Community Church for their support as well. Thanks to the Raven Creek Social Club, especially Nathan, Emily, Joe and Joshua for tech support and advice and for welcoming us to their fine family podcasts. Uh, thanks to Chris, who travelled a couple of hours each way to do this with me. Thanks to Vaughan and the boys at Grave Forsaken for contributing tunes for the show. Check them out at graveforsaken.com. Finally, thanks to you, our audience, for tuning in and subscribing. We will see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or to the show. Don't forget, if you haven't got the book yet, you can head over to Amazon and grab a copy in paperback or Kindle. Follow the links at giantanswers.com. Read the blog to catch us on the socials. And don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions. Stay tuned to this podcast to get giant answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless.